0: I did WAG school in 1970, left home in my school uniform and changed at Flinders Street Station and uh, went to my first cup in 1970. And I'd picked out a horse that I wanted to back, a horse called Vansatart from New Zealand. I still remember its name. And uh, I think I got knocked back by two or three bookies. Uh, Couldn't even put the bed on until I saw some old bastards standing by the side there. And I said, mate, can you put that $10 each way Vantatat for me? And he said, good as gold, Sonny. And off he went. And uh, 53 years later, still never seen the bloke. (laughs) Not since. I I did learn a very early lesson about money at the racetrack. Don't trust anyone. (laughs)
1: punters, and welcome to Quinny's Cult Heroes. Thanks to the Ladbrokes Listen Network. Our special guest today, a man known affectionately as a media superstar, a punting genius, and also known as Dr Turf. A very warm welcome to John Rothfield. So you got my notes, did you? That's it. I've got <laughs> yeah. the itinerary you sent me, so yeah. ring this at the top. I was going to mention Scotch College royalty as well, but I thought I'd leave that out of the opener.
0: Well, you know, it's not all that popular these days, saying you went to a private school. Uh, even more so because Scotch College, and day, Quinny, <laughs> but even more so because Scotch College, when I went there, uh, Melbourne Cup Day wasn't a public holiday. I mean, it's about as un-Australian as you can get.
1: Well, I mean, knowing what a... Conscientious student, you were then. I'm sure you always abided by that. It was a school day, so you always went to school on Melbourne Cup Day. You certainly wouldn't have played hooky and you certainly would have gone to the races
0: underage on Melbourne Cup Day. Until 1970, <laughs> uh, which was uh, my first Melbourne Cup. Because I, seriously, I mean, I love racing from an early age and had this fixation about the Melbourne Cup. My old man who was a race goer had talked about the Melbourne Cup as – he actually was at the 1930 Melbourne Cup that Farlap won when he was a, uh, a young man. And um, so I, I loved the Melbourne Cup and, and it was so difficult going to Scotch and Cup Day. And some of the teachers, like, they wouldn't even pause to listen to the race. It was just banned. So I did WAG school in 1970, left home in my school uniform and changed at Flinders Street Station and uh, went to my first cup in 1970, and I'd picked out a horse that I wanted to back, a horse called Vansatat from New Zealand. I still remember its name. And I was going to have 10 bucks each one. And I was, believe it or not, quite short and youthful looking when I was 16. And uh, I think I got knocked back by two or three bookies. Uh, couldn't even put the bed on until I saw some old bastard standing by the side there. And I said, mate, can you put that $10 each way Vansatat for me? And he said, good as gold, Sonny. And off he went. And uh, 53 years later, still never seen the bloke. (laughs) Not since I I learned a very early lesson. He took my 20 bucks and bucked it off. Oh, no. And the horse (laughs) ran third? He ran third to uh, Baghdad Note. So what was the place dividend? Well, I don't know. I never got it, did I? It would have been about six, seven bucks Uh, the place. No, no, it wasn't that much. He was in the betting. I mean, the New Zealanders were feared back in the day for... Melbourne Cup and the feature races uh, in Spring Carnival, they were the enemy. You know, before the international started, or the boat horses as I call them, uh, before they started flocking here, it was the uh, the Kiwis were the uh, the big dangers, the big Smokies.
1: Let's say it was three fifty the place. and we will be
0: conservative. Yeah.
1: That's thirty five dollars with fifty three years interest. And knowing how but you I... love a dollar, you've probably
0: <laughs> done the interest on what that's now cost you. No, I haven't, Nick. But you can do it for me afterwards. <laughs> but I, I did learn a very early lesson about money at the racetrack. Don't trust anyone.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, you obviously loved racing from day one, and your parents were very keen on the sport as well. Walk
0: us through that early experience. Um, yeah, I mean, my old man who came to Australia from Scotland in uh, the 1920s had been, he, he and his mates went to the races every week. It was a sort of bit of a gambling household. They weren't big gamblers, but he played poker on a Monday night with the same blokes for as long as I can remember, 30 or 40 years, the same blokes. Went to the races with the same blokes every Saturday. My mum bet. She had no idea. You know, I remember the the, the SP's runner would come around every Friday, Friday and collect. Her name was Gwen Torpy. I still remember her name. And when I did Brecky on RSN or Sport 927 25 years ago, I told that story and her nephew rang up and said that was my auntie. I, don't, I can't remember the name of the SP that she worked for, but... She came around and collected off my mother every Friday. So we went to the races. Uh, I could only go in in, um, summertime because, you know, I I was like to go with the old man when I was a kid. But then our summer holidays, which were held every year on the Port Phillip Riviera or Frankston, you probably know it as. So we would go to Pakenham and Mornington and Crammond and that was my first introduction to On Course and I just loved it, just absolutely. I loved the sound you know, the noises, the barriers crashing back and the smell of the texture colour. the bookies used to write their bets on their pieces of cardboard, the horses, the colours, the jockeys, I was just hooked, hooked.
1: You fell in love from day dot. At yeah. what age did you think this is something I want to learn more about and get
0: involved with a little bit more seriously? I never had uh, any, I mean, I was a pickle, you know, like a complete pickle, all, you know, betting through, you know, my teens and, you know, <laughs> I remember I used to have to sort of, Here's uh, my mother's phone account, RPRA 7043 <laughs> was the account number. That's that's weird, isn't it? Uh, and if I won anything, I'd have to get my hair cut before she'd give me the money that I'd won in her account. Uh, but, you know, I sort of punted then and, you know, through my late teens and early 20s and, and I had no ability at it whatsoever. But I met someone, you know, I met someone who was... A professional putter. John Duncan. John Duncan was his name, that's right. He was well known as the Colonel and uh, some of your older listeners um, will certainly remember him and he's been dead a long time, unfortunately, but he was he was a genius.
1: He was an absolute genius. How was he a genius? What made him so good and how was he ahead of the times and ahead of the
0: game? Well, uh, you had an opportunity to be well, well ahead of the game. So I'm talking now uh, late 70s uh, and, and in through the 80s in that you know first of all he had a, he had a manual database so every horse had a card it was filled out every day every race meeting what it did where it was in the run and a lot of it's memory and and listening to listening to race calls uh, he would he'd ring me on a friday and say get in the car be at the front so i was working for him compiling form basically and he uh, would say on, on the friday be at the front we're going to Flemington. What do you mean, Flemington? Flemington's tomorrow. See, we're going to walk the track. This is mid late '70s, so way ahead of his time. Um, the, the, the form cards that he had on every horse in Victoria, uh, and then he taught me how to read races, how to frame your own markets. You know, which of course is the actual, you know, the, the main thing you've got to do: try and get the odds in your favour. And it was all possible in these days because. You know what do we race? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday. Maybe four meetings a week. There was no Friday, no Sunday racing, no Fridays, no Mondays. It was heaven. You had a same pool of horses, horses from the Gippsland, never raced in the West, and vice versa. You know the the, the horses raced in their own postcodes, if you like. You know so, you know for form students back in those days, the markets were incredibly competitive. You, you know like you. you if your listeners understand what you know percentages are, you're betting into markets now of 130 odd percents. We would bet into markets 105 percent, and on the jump it'd be sometimes it'd be 98 percent. So, if you could frame a market better than the the public market, the bookies market, or the T O B market, which in a way is a reflection of public popularity, and nothing more. So, if you were doing good form and better form and all of that you had an edge, but those days are long gone. Yes, because as you
1: alluded to, you get the opportunity to get to the track and be the first to bet. Now, if you're betting on a Saturday these days, the markets have been open since Wednesday. Well, that's right. But there was no markets, what, until 15,
0: 20 minutes before that's, a race. You know, a race w- was run and won, and you'd wait, correct, wait then you'd wait another five, six minutes, and you'd all flock to the betting ring and wait for the first bookie to put the prices up, and that was the first sign of any odds for any race. This is Metropolitan Saturday meeting. So, and of course, you know, Crackers, the horse you're, you wanted to be on, was, let's say it was $5, and the bookie next door, $4.50, and there's five fifty. Oh, there's $6 out in the back of the ring over there. You could have seen half a dozen different prices for each horse. It was so competitive. And for punters who did form and devoted all of their time to it, Uh, and were methodical and um, disciplined, which is, you know, uh, a much underestimated factor when punting, Nick? Yeah, it's a skill we haven't quite mastered yet, feel. <laughs> Uh I must admit I've let myself go in recent years. Uh, but, yeah, they were the glory days and they'll never, ever be back.
1: Yes, because punters have got so much in their favour these days in terms of opportunity and different bet types and whatnot, but it was just such a different landscape as well where you were rewarded for putting in
0: that hard work. Yeah, you were, and you had a variety of competitive prices, competitive. You know, we'd go to – when I was punning professionally, so I'm talking mid-20s through to about – the age of 40, if we go to Ballarat on a Thursday or we even on a Thursday, you know, there'd be the, the you call it the members betting ring, you know, uh, <laughs> and outside there'd be a second and third ring. Yeah. This is midweek. This is the provincials. So, you know, it was so competitive. Um, it was, you know, we had the best of times. There's no doubt about that.
1: How were you punting strategically? Were you backing lots of horses in the same race just to win on each race or Uh, were you trying to aggressively attack runners you
0: liked? You know, we all read books by this Sydney putter named uh, Don Scott called Winning and then Winning More, I think, and it was a guide to framing markets and all of that. And so you'd frame your own market and you'd do a market to, say, 90% and you'd back the overs. Yep. You know, you'd back the overs, and if, if, if you like the favour, you didn't like the odds, you might take it to win the trifecta or that sort of stuff. So, you know, it was it was a lot of fun, and it was hard work. I mean, it was hard work, but it was great fun. And for those that are new to the
1: racing and the betting landscape, basically the percentage is how much money you've got to spend if you're going to collect $100. So if it's 130%, you've got to spend $100 Hundred and thirty dollars to collect a hundred. Yeah. If it's ninety percent, you've got to spend ninety dollars. So the lower the percentage, yeah. the
0: better in the punter's terms, and that was your edge. And, and that was the edge. And there was no, there was no such thing as, as race fields legis- legislation that would charge to the corporates that would pass it on to the punter. And of course, the point of consumption tax, which is the latest one, it's just become harder and harder and harder. Um, I'm not exactly sure how clever this latest increase is going to be for the for the industry. Uh, because I think punters have only got a certain amount to punt with, so um, we'll see. But uh, we certainly, you know, there was very, very lax taxation in those days and, um, you know, you couldn't even be taxed as a professional punter either, you know. It was winnings, not earnings. Well, I I don't know exactly. I I was never challenged by it, but certainly professional punters that I knew fought the taxation department. They all won.
1: Be careful. The tax department might still come for you, Turfy. I'm not afraid of them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How big were you betting? Uh, well, without giving figures away, I'm about five times bigger than I bet these days. I mean, I just muck around these days. But, yeah, you know, I'd be happy to have, a, you know, a, a grand on a horse or 500 each way on a horse or a couple of thousand if I really fan- – I wouldn't bet anywhere near that anymore. But that was – you know, I was punting for a living. So, you know, and I didn't have a family to worry about, <laughs> kids to worry about or put through school and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, uh, I was never a, never a big punter, but – I was consistent. Consistently and good you know, turnover. Something? Never bet on Sydney, never bet on Adelaide, never bet on Brisbane, never bet on the dogs or the or the trots. And yet, it, it was just Victorian racing.
1: You break those rules every week now with the footy.
0: Yeah, well, that's right. Well, you know, this is part of the thing that we used to go through, you know, part of the huge change at the end of the, you know, the 1990s and 2000s, you couldn't legally bet on footy. You know, mm. you weren't allowed to. And you know, then Brian Clark up in Darwin started betting on footy. The bookies here begged to be licensed, you yeah, know, because all the bookies that I knew, they'd say, "Well, hang on, there's my customer standing in front of me. He's betting all day here at Flemington. He wants to have a monkey on Collingwood to beat Carlton, and he's not allowed to." Mm. It was insanity that um, was the Kennett government was totally opposed to it. I knew the uh, sports minister under the I think his name was Tom Reynolds, and he was desperately trying to get Jeff to change his mind, but. Um, I think in pressure from Tabcorp and um, and the VRC they they wanted the they wanted to uh, stop the bookies from doing that, let alone letting the bookies to have phones. You know, what's the history of what's the strike rate of prohibition over the over the decades? It never works. You know, and it was such a short-sighted sort of position that they took. I remember doing um, I was doing breakfast at RSN or. Sport 927, you know, the end of the 1990s and 2000s, you know, we knew what was going to happen. We knew what was going to happen, that the corporates were going to come in. Of course, before all that happened, you know, bookies would go to places like Vanuatu and all that sort of stuff and, and 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 bet up there and then the Northern Territory Government licensed them all. And here, you know, New South Wales and Victoria, the home of it all, missed out completely. It was so dumb. It was so dumb.
1: A kick or two behind the play, that's for sure. Now... Yeah. Without giving figures away, well, you can if you want. Can you remember the biggest bet you ever had and what was it on?
0: No, I, I don't. The biggest bet I would have been on AFL footy, I suspect, because I do love betting on, on footy, as you <laughs> well know, and a bit of golf and <laughs> a bit of cricket and, you're all right. Um, Table tennis? No, no, no. Not two flies crawling up a wall either, Nick. Uh, I bet you I, evens. Unless I've seen a, a video of their previous crawls. <laughs> um, but no, I, you know... Uh, I'm not a I'm not a big punter. I'm seriously not a big punter. Yeah, but, but everyone's I, but had a biggest
1: bet. Can you remember what yours was? No, all? I don't. No, I remember mine. Been, do you? What yeah. was it? Roger Federer at the Australian Open, round three, against a little-known player called Nyanko Tipserovich. Two thousand and seven. No, he was meant to win the cakewalk. Had plenty on, and Federer won in five sets. Yeah. Worst bet I've ever had, but it's still won. <laughs> so it, I remember
0: mine? And the figure was what, what was it? Yeah, north of that. Okay, right. <laughs> I, I don't. Like I've probably had. I, don't know, I might have had three or four grand on a footy, footy game, you know. Um, but, yeah, no, I, as I said, I, I don't bet. I'm small. I am small. Very small these days. Now – I still do form, though. From punting, yes. you went into the media. How did that come about? Uh, totally accidental. I um, I went to a, a – a, a, a mate of mine was a puppeteer. <laughs> that was his – we'd been to school together and he was a puppeteer. I can't even remember the name of the – he was quite a well-known um, – Theatre company that he was involved in, but he was a, also had sort of mates in the comedy game, and there was an annual cricket match between the comedians. One team was called the comedians, and the other team was called the barehanded wolf chokers. <laughs> and at that particular cricket match, I met a couple of Melbourne uh, entertainers, Slim Whittle and Con Morasco. Uh, Tony Rickards uh, was an actor and did stand-up comedy and, and Mitchell Faircloth was Slim Whittle, part of the Whittle family, which was one of the greatest acts that ever been in the Australian sort of entertainment industry. And they had just commenced a, a racing program on radio, on 3 Triple R called Punter to punter, And they'd been going for two weeks, I think, and I, uh, because I was a punter, I was punning for a living at that stage, I got introduced to them and they said, you want to come on the show? And uh, Uh, that went for nine years, uh, that that particular show. And 3RRR was a – we ended up on 3XY, which um, I don't even know if 3XY still exists, but at the time it was the number one radio station in Australia. And then FM radio came and it was gone. I think it was a Greek radio station the next year. Um, But 3RRR in those days, we're talking 81 – I was there from 81 to 86 or something. The Saturday morning lineup was 9 till 10 was Lawyer's Guns and Money, which was Ross Stevenson, who is – 40-plus years later is still the number one broadcaster in Australia by 100 yards on 3OW. And it was us, to punter, and then 11, uh, sorry, 10 to 11 was, could have been champions who are still on radio and, you know, t- guys like Tony Lennon who left them, but he's – we're still great mates. He's at AW. So Saturday morning there was fabulous, triple R. It was just fabulous. And a lot of fun. You were entertaining and informing. And doing, yeah, we did races, but it was sort of a, it's almost like a sitcom on radio, and and we would we did live shows, we toured, and and we had a band, we sung songs about racing, and and did sketches, and we we did radio plays. Um, Raiders of the Lost Cup came out about the same time as the uh, um, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. We did another one on on the Trail of (laughs) Sugar. Which was, do you remember Shergo was an English and Irish Derby winner that got, yeah, the kidnapped, IRA got, got kidnapped by the And shot, I think, by mm. the IRA. So we did radio plays dressed in dinner suits with a live audience that was broadcast live to where with a huge um, sound effects desk. So, you know, with a huge, a, a fake door. You know, somebody would open and shut the door <laughs> and we had a sand pit with gravel and guy would sort of put the boots up and down to, you know, for. The sound of footprints. So it was a visual and an audio sort of, and we did this for nine years and um, it was great fun.
1: And some of the race clubs saw the upside in what you were doing and, and got you involved. Yeah. Tell us about who well, did first, the uh, Valley.
0: Ian McEwen. Ian McEwen at the Valley, he was he was a great supporter of ours and loved it. And uh, we had a lot of fun with him. You know, we used to, Ian McEwen, this is fair, he was the CEO of, of Mooney Valley. And uh, there was only two track readings at Mooney Valley. It was track good or meeting abandoned. So you could, <laughs> a, you, you could have had a heavy 10 there, and it was track good as far as he was concerned. You, he just said, Look, you can call me, you know, the bank robber from Mooney Valley. Just as long as you mention Mooney Valley, you, we could call him anything, but just say he was from Mooney Valley. We did live shows there. We did stuff at uh, Caulfield as well, the VATC, they were known as in those days. Uh, I think Jack Elliott from uh, World of Sport used to call them the, the very amateur turf club, but it was actually uh-huh. the Victorian amateur turf club. Uh, and surprisingly, the one club that didn't embrace us was Flemington. And VAR, why was so that? Why was that? Why did I, Flemington I, not like I, your riffraff? I, I don't know. They, I don't know, but it just wasn't for them. But um, it was a lot of fun.
1: And did you sense that the growing popularity led to the next people coming through wanting to
0: be involved in racing more as a result? I hope I hope so, you know, we did, yeah, like maybe. We we just tried to do it and really 40 years later not much has changed in that there's not much entertaining in horse racing. We just don't get, I don't think, how to present horse racing and I think it's more crucial to get it right now because I think this trend of – People dropping off racing, you know, and it was certainly evident prior to COVID. COVID was a bit of a sugar hit and it seems to be, turnover seems to be very wobbly again. And I think young people, I mean, you know, I've got three kids in their 20s, and one's just turned, but I've got three kids, two of them hate racing and one of them has no interest in it. Why do they hate it? Well, two of them think it's cruel. And no matter, we, we, we actually just don't talk about it because <laughs> I can't convince them. And their peer groups are all of the same opinion. I'm not saying that it, they're – it's widespread throughout 20-year-olds. It's obviously not. But, you know, there's a fair bit of resistance to it, certainly to, to gambling, you know. I mean, that's just the reality, you know. It, the, the, the social issue of that uh, is more exposed than it was, you know – 20, 30, 40 years ago, it's, and obviously the animal welfare thing is as well. I, look, it's just not sexy anymore, if it ever was, uh, and I think it's a great problem facing facing racing administrators. So, therefore, it's incumbent upon uh, the racing broadcast platforms, such as RSN and, and such as racing.com, to entertain people. So what would you do if they said, Turfy, here's a blank canvas... How would you schedule it? What would you do? What would you like to see more of or less of? I'll tell you what i like to see less of without knowing what I want to see more of, and that is analysis. It it is just relentless sectionals and speed maps and watching trial videos. You know, like I might be wrong, Nick, but I reckon 90% of people are bored. What's the word? Bored completely by it. You know, I, I just, I, I think they want to be told, have a bet, this is what I like, uh, and let's have a bit of fun doing it. The, the, what is there entertaining about the presentation of racing over the last 40 years? Naf all. Naf all. And, and you, you know what? If turnover's wobbly, sorry to get it all serious here, it's not the idea, but if turnover's wobbly, we've got to expand our base. We have to introduce people to the sport. You can't keep turning over the same numbers, not taxing them the way we do either. You know, that's going to run out. So we need to sort of broaden. We need to engage people who maybe sample racing cup week or, or whatever. We need to engage them. We need to sort of make them say, hang on, I want to hear what he's got to say. I want to watch that. That's funny. That's entertaining. That's interesting. That's colourful. What do we do? it? We don't do it in radio. We don't do it on TV. And we certainly don't do it in the print media. Where are the great racing riders? Where have they gone? I mean, you know, you're a former of racing, you know, where is it? Don't know. No, I don't know, I don't know either, So that's but, what we don't do, but, but
1: what, what do you want to see? What would you like to see? Think, oh, that's on. I want to sit down, I want to watch that each day or each night. What would be something that would draw you and you think would draw a younger audience and people to the sport?
0: Well, you know, it can't be just one show a week. And, you know, I know Get On on, on, our, on Racing.com is one show that's a little bit lighthearted, not so technical. And I'd like to think that what I've been doing on Saturday morning, on Saturday morning contenders, I mean, you've got your obligations. I understand that. Um, but I'd still like to, you know, I think about, because I was in the general sports media for a while as well, all my years at SEN and AW, Um, I love footy, right? I I love footy. Do I watch on the couch once every six weeks? Do I watch footy classified? Never. Do I watch AFL 360? No. I watch watch the front bar every Thursday night. You know, I don't want to learn it. There's nothing. I don't care about all that garbage. You know, leave me out of all of that. I love watching footy. I watch six games a weekend and bet on them as well. But the only footy show I watch is front bar. And what do we provide racing fans? Where's the light-hearted, you know, I'm sure non-footy fans watch the front bar, just like non-footy fans used to watch the footy show back in its early days. You know, Channel 9 launched the footy show, Channel 7 wouldn't give them vision. You know, and it worked out in Channel 9's favour.
1: Could racing do a similar show? Well, because there's so well, many great characters in why the I industry. Couldn't?
0: Why couldn't it? That might be but, your next role. But like, I'm, it's probably gone past me. But I, it, the the industry's got to have a will for it, and I don't think there is a will for it. I you know, I I, don't, I haven't faith in any of the management's to actually think beyond the bleeding obvious. Trial shows, analysis shows, you know, tipping shows one after the other. Who? Who's wavering about horse racing is going to sample that and say, mm, "I like that. That's the sport. I want. I want to. I want to learn more about that." No one. No one. And you're running out of time, industry. You're running out of time.
1: I like this. I can see you getting fired up from this <laughs> and going and putting a petition forward and getting some shows up and running. Speaking of shows that got up and running, talk to us about the fat because that was when. A lot of people who maybe had heard you a lot got to see you a lot, and I dare say that's where your profile went through the roof as well.
0: Uh, the fat, yeah, that was a, a hell of a lot of fun. Um, I didn't know any of those people that um, I ended up working with up there. I, I went on a show one cup time, I think, to give a cup tip on a bloke named James O'Loughlin, and on the show was uh, um, Tony Squires, Squires. and uh, he ended up doing a uh, an ABC um, sort of sports chat show, a review show on a Monday night um, called The Fat and it was him and myself, I did every second week I think, uh, they, they, it was on in Sydney, uh, Rebecca, Rebecca Wilson, Daily Telegraph uh, rugby league writer who sadly uh, passed away a few years back and um, Peter Wilkins who was a, a rugby league broadcaster from the ABC and we just talked shit. I mean, That, that was it. It was just treat, sp- try and entertain people talking about sport Uh, and unfortunately that uh, ABC, I think the truth behind that was Andrew Denton wanted the time slot. Oh, really? And they gave it to him. So they shifted us to Friday night, which made the show a preview show and it never worked. It never worked as well. And Tony Squires cracked it and he had offers from seven and nine. Uh, and he went to Seven and that was that was the show lasted about six weeks and got the wrist off. Is that all it
1: lasted for?
0: Well, I, I can't remember. I thought it was longer than it that because it, it was very popular yeah, there in that period of time. It, it may be but um, Channel 7 didn't know what to do with the show and they made us have, you know, actors and actresses from home and away on it every second week. Oh,
1: you would have loved that. Yeah, yeah
0: you know. <laughs> um, but the I reckon the first three years at the ABC I, I was really – proud of it. I think it was a terrific program. Uh, we had, you know, we rated nearly a, we had nearly a million viewers on a Monday night on the ABC which was in those days big stuff.
1: Well, it's massive and it was before pay TV came in and it was one of those car, uh, shows that was a draw card. People would have it in their calendar that they'd watch it every Monday yeah. night and I know personally that's when I got to know you and you promoted racing so well but in that colourful fun way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right, and uh, you know that's just what I like doing. But um, you know, I don't think there's a much will outside of uh, outside of uh, me to do that <laughs> sort of stuff to be entertaining. To be entertaining.
1: Now, you've worked with you've worked on many of the broadcasts over the years. You've worked on the likes of RSN, the likes of SEN. Tell us about working on RSN and how that came to an end,
0: and now you're back. Uh, yeah, uh, Rod Fitzroy rang me up. And I think, I don't know, I think I was working through AW at the time after I'd, I'd, yeah, I must have been at AW. I can't really remember, but Rod Fitzroy rang up and said, would you be interested in doing breakfast radio on RSN? And I said, oh, you know, who with? Kevin said, Kevin, Bar- Kevin Bartlett, okay, well, you know, I didn't know Kevin at all, uh, but it's And what seen- year was this roughly? Oh, Jesus, I, about, I don't know, when did the casino open? Because we went to the opening casino, I remember that, like 99 90- on- 2000, was it? was it? 97. Was it 97, was it? Yeah, late 90s, okay. So it must have been late 90s. So I went and worked, um, did breakfast with KB, who I'd never met, and it was very nervous about meeting him because he was, you know, he'd been post-football, he'd been at KZ and AW and all, you know, the big stations. KZ, of course, no longer exists, but that was a a really big station in Melbourne before FM radio came in. Um and got to meet Kevin, and we sort of, did, well, I think we did a pilot, and we just, you know, you know he was a, a su- you know, a superstar, really, you know, in, in the Melbourne sports landscape, he was a superstar, you know, obviously his footy record spoke for itself, and it had already established a fantastic broadcasting career, and I wondered, I was nobody, you know, I'd come from 3 R basically, and had a few years at AW, but really a complete nobody and um, he just embraced me, you know, took me under his wing and, uh, you know, I'm proud to say 25, 26 years later we are just the best of mates and I still maintain one of the the best people I've ever worked with in my life, just so professional and and he is so clever and just in the media a really honest person with great integrity which is, uh, you know, about one in ten. He's got a great skill set, but I don't think he did anything better,
1: and I'm including kicking goals than winding you up. <laughs> yeah, just throwing the bait no, out, no. and you'd not only take the bait, you'd take yeah. the hook line and
0: sinker. Yeah, yeah, no, it was there was some theatre involved, Quinny, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like just a wonderful bloke, and uh, we had a great. Uh, I was about three years doing breakfast there, but I, I did walk a very thin line there, um, you, you know, with racing authorities, and was constantly sort of getting phone calls during ad breaks, <laughs> you know, you know uh, Brian Beatty was the um, CEO of Racing Victoria, and very, uh, Racing Victoria was a brand new at that stage, and he was, I mean, he was a great, he was a great bloke, and you know, I was still, I mean, I like Brian a lot, but by, oh, geez, he, he'd ring up during the ad break and just scream at me for something negative I'd said about the state of the track, or the, why, you know, how come I'm going to call And on a Saturday, and I asked him, can I put the footy on one of the channels, and they wouldn't put the footy on, and... I was just constantly sort of carrying on like a pork chop and uh, he was always ringing up.
1: And they were getting agitated. In your defence
0: though, I'm guessing
1: people that were listening at home were having the same frustrations you were having. So you were the voice of the punter and the management instead of – embracing this and potentially looking to work with you or try and fix the problems, as can sometimes be the case in racing, want to just eradicate the voice?
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, look, uh, thanks. I think that's right. I mean, I I do remember going into the station manager was a guy named Noel Crow, who I liked and got on really well with him. And Steve Cairns, the late Steve Cairns, was a fantastic program director. Uh, We had great support from management there. Uh, But I caused problems for them. You know, there was no corporates at that stage, as I've mentioned earlier on, so I was constantly berating the TAB who were funding the station, you know, and I understand that, but the TAB, you know, still to this day believe they're in a monopoly, I reckon. Like they just, you know, they, dro- they dropped the ball so badly. There was no customer service, there was no innovation there and I was constantly hammering them and... And sometimes the clubs as well. But it was always from the perspective of a punter. You know, I wanted, you know, being, despite being in the racing media, I still looked on myself as a punter. And I'd go to Noel Crow and say, listen, mate, I know you don't like this. And I know Tab Corp doesn't like this. And I know Racing Victoria doesn't. And I know the VRC doesn't like this. But you know what? I'm tipping the audience is okay with it. And you know what, Noel? The audience is paying your wages and they're paying my wages and they're paying the Racing Victoria board's way, you, you know, their their fees and all of that. They're, the punters are paying for everything. Prize money, when it comes down to it, it's all punter-driven and we're treating them like shit. So <laughs> that was the constant battle. And in the end, my contract was up for renewal and I wanted a, clauses taken out that made me answerable for stuff that I wasn't happy with and he said... Like what? What were some of the clauses? Uh, Well, you know, that I would agree not to be critical of or say just make any disparaging remarks about certain sectors of the industry. Uh, And I said, mate, I'm not an idiot, you know, like I will always present a balanced view if, you know, if there is a (laughs) balanced view of it but you've got to give me some breathing space. And they wouldn't. So that was that. And uh, I left and left KB on his own. <laughs> How did KB take it? And he was – well, he got back, a I minute. Mean, at RSN, I mean, at uh, SEN a few <laughs> years later. But um, no, he was okay. You know, look, like, he was okay. And um, he only lasted another couple of years there, I think, anyway. Um, but I, I reckon we had a great Brecky program for those uh, three and a bit years. Did some great interviews. I learned so much from him. He, you know, he's a fabulous person, mind like a steel trap. Like, I've never known anybody. He's not a punter in any way, shape or form. But if you mentioned Sailor's Guide, he'll tell you where Sailor's Guide, you know, where it ran in the Washington International in 1970 or whatever the hell it was and who Frankie Ropers fought at Festival Hall in August 9, You know, he just has this steel trap of a memory for sporting minutiae. Uh, but, yeah, no, it was a, a great time, but it was an uncomfortable... You know, I got I got taken to meet the, the chairman of the Tabcorp for some, like, punishment once. The worst one, I reckon, this is fair we were doing brekkie and Fleming or the VRC had brought out, I can't remember, it was Lisa Marie Presley for the spring carnival one year. And I'm doing breaking with KB and I said, what the hell are they bringing out that washed-up B-grade hack actress for Flemington? Well, Brian Beatty had gone to Flemington, uh, gone to Tullamarine to pick her up in the car. The station was on. <laughs> <laughs> in the car. I, I was presented to her to apologise. And did you? I, and I, well, she Cap in never, hand? Cap in hand. She didn't even look me in the eye. Like, it was just, it was... Anyway, so I was just a thorn in their sides. But, you know.
1: <laughs> but, Are you um, an
0: Elvis fan? Um, medium. I've been to Graceland, actually. Which, there we was go. A, which was a great experience, to be honest. Um, but, uh, yeah, I wasn't a Lisa Marie, huge Lisa Marie fan.
1: Now, you'd be reunited with Kevin Bartlett and footy fans and racing fans were rejoicing because you had some great times together on SEN. How did that come about?
0: Yeah. Uh, when there was a merger of SEN and Croc Media, which was the company that I had a, a, a an interest in. We'll get to that next. With uh, with Craig Hutchison. Um, and there was a merger. It was an actual merger of the two companies. Uh, so uh, an p- equal merger, not like a Fitzroy no, no. Brisbane Bears <laughs> merger. Pacific Star was the, owned the licences for SEN and it was it Magic, one of the other stations. And um, they were a public company and uh, we were a sort of private company and we merged and... So Hutchie took part of the uh, the um, the merger was that um, we took over uh, the management of SEN and Hutchie became CEO obviously and uh, boy did he CEO uh, and his idea was to for KB and I to do drive and uh, he'd already decided you know there's two versions of this but I'll tell you the true version because from the other side there's not much truth and that is. Ox and Marco, who were institutions, yeah, they'd been at SEN for about eight years doing drive and Hutchie had made the decision they would no longer be doing drive. Uh, and then a month or so later, he often asked me if I wanted to do drive with KB and I said, yes, only with KB, no one else. I wasn't looking to do work in five days a week, basically, because uh, I was doing that show off the bench anyway on a Saturday morning. Um, and uh, so Hutchie and I went round to KB's place and ran it past him and he said he was doing mornings. He, he was really happy doing 9 till 12, which was he raided through the roof. I don't remember the figures, but I would say he's probably got a two or three times bigger audience than Jared Whateley has now. I mean, I know there's there's other platforms now and there's other, you know, there's podcasts and streaming and downloads and this and that, whatever you want to call it, but his raw figures were huge for that time slot. But he agreed to shift from mornings and have a crack at doing drive with me, which we did. And uh, with, uh, fair to say it was under-resourced. Um, I'll, I'll say that it was un- un- under-resourced, but we had such great fun doing it uh, that we sort of got by most of the time. But it was always going to blow up. <laughs> You replaced
1: two very popular people in that time slot with... Who were friends of David mine at the Schwartz time. and Mark Allen. Friends of mine at the time. And you say at the time, was there a fallout from that? Well, I haven't spoken to either of them since. Because they blame you for their demise? They
0: blame me for their demise. And KB knows the truth. Everybody, you know, KB, Denise Bartler knows the truth. She was there. Everybody knows the truth, but um, those two blokes seem to be um, happy you know, with our own version of it. Have you reached out to them? Oh, of course. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, both of them. And Marco in particular when he was ill. Can you see how,
1: from their point of view, though, it does not look great where you've got you come in
0: I with come the in, team? I'm and a shareholder they're... in Cross. Look, that's fine. Don't believe me. And there was a period of time. There was about a month from the time that they were – and Marco was offered another contract, by the way. He may not uh, – that may not sit conveniently with him, but the, the reality was he was offered a contract not to do drive and Ox wasn't, uh, but he, they decided to go off and do something else. But they know the truth. They they know the truth. Uh, they've been told the truth by enough independent people, but it, as I said, it didn't suit them.
1: With all the time that's passed since then, do you think it would be something that would be nice down the track if you sat down with those guys and well, broke not for, bread?
0: Not for, not for me. To, I've made overtures, you know, <laughs> Yeah. And uh as long as there wasn't any cutlery nearby, I, I, I was sure. So sit
1: down <laughs> on a table like this with no cutlery and have a chat and hopefully the emotions well, passed because you're well, all both you're well, all great broadcasters. It'd be nice to get back on good there's terms. There's
0: enough time gone by, it should have gone past anyway anyway. But yeah, you know, he doesn't talk to my brother either, you know. So like he's they're just imbeciles, the two of them. Whack.
1: <laughs> Dr, Dr Turf goes bank. Now, tell yeah. us about Croc Media. How did that start and how did it evolve to where uh, it is now? Well, when KB
0: and I did Brecky, um, Hutchie was a cadet journalist at the Herald Sun and KB's idea was to get Hutchie across to produce our breakfast program. So that's how that relationship started and he produced us for a couple of years Uh before he bailed out to do something different and he went to Channel 7, didn't he, and become a footy reporter and all that. So And had this great career, really, as a footy reporter for 10 and 7 and so forth. Uh, but that's, that's how we were... In, uh, clearly, KB knew Hutchie from somewhere and um, brought him across, so that was the beginning of our relationship. And then he came to my brother and I one day and had this idea for this media company... A little bit ahead of his time, a couple of things that, you um, know, want to have a news bureau, want to do this and do that. And we sort of, uh, we had no input, limited input into the um, intellectual development of the, com- the company, but we certainly were instrumental in setting up the company and um, supporting Craig. And it's just creating this created this monstrous, monstrously successful, fair to say. Um, media company that has all sorts of platforms and and, uh, assets uh, across Australia and New Zealand, Australia-wide.
1: There were a couple of early challenges, though, was probably one of those things you had to put your hand in your pocket a little more initially than you hoped and envisaged.
0: Yeah, I mean, things, yeah, plenty of stuff didn't work, you know, and plenty of stuff did work. And in the end, getting the AFL rights, AFL radio rights, um, a few years back was you know the the actual cementing of the business. I mean, buying Sen, of course, not buying Sen, but so sort of the merger and and having a, you know a front window, if you like, in Sen was the start. Uh, but it's no it's been fantastic, and he is a smarter bloke as you'd ever want to meet. He's an
1: and a great hardworking man as well. His yeah, work, no, I no, free. No, Back in the,
0: you know, you'd get emails and three o'clock in the morning and four o'clock in the morning, and. and just ideas and working out compromises and, you know, people would say, well, that, that this doesn't work, that will never work, and finding out ways to make whatever it was work. So you're still a shareholder in the business, but you're no longer on air? No longer on air. No, no, we did – as I said, KB and I did drive there, and there were, there were issues there and uh, – Such ca- as? <laughs> oh, well, yeah – uh, there was just issues, you know. I always thought we were under resourced, uh, and uh, KB um, was even felt even more so about it. And you know, he, he always used to say, you know, once the sales department starts sort of running the show, you're you're, you're in trouble. And he just, I was, I think I was in America on holidays, actually on a golfing holiday with my missus, and um, KB rang up and said, oh, I just quit. By the way, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you know, given the fact that we were a team, I figured, well, that's not going to end well for me, and. Um, I never never went back. Would you? Is there any bad blood with Craig? Uh, I'm, I, look, what's I, t- I tell you what frustrated me the most was, I don't think quality is um, high on the agenda. I think it's it's partner client first, and audience and broadcast second, and that didn't sit all that well with me. So, you know, we haven't. You know, it's not that I. You know, if he walked in the room, we'd, we'd wag, but I'm not going looking for him.
1: So your problem is that it's too much about making money and keeping the clients happy as opposed to putting out good quality. I suppose the argument of that is they are running a business no, and I they want to succeed. I,
0: I think, uh, you know, I think there was a resistance to give anything to, you know, what we wanted to do. You know, I don't like doing not my best. Yep. I wanted to do my best. So when you say you are under-resourced, Flesh that out. Oh, well, um, you know, we we had we weren't allowed to have any contributors and, and it was all supposed to be KB and I talking the whole time. The amount of advertising on SEN is demanding, you know, I think for the listener and the broadcaster himself. So that sort of stuff, you know, and, and being a Monday to Friday broadcaster, you know, it was just tough going in the end and I was sort of quite happy to once KB made the decision, you know, I wasn't trying to stay on to do drive. You know, it's funny, being loving footy as I do, you know, I'd watch footy on the weekend and if there was a bump to the head or a mistake by a goal umpire, the first thing that I'd think of, oh, no, that's two and a half hours of talk back on that bump. You know, it actually it, a it actually, I can't stand the footy media. You know, they are so, it just regurgitating statistics and vomit, you know, if you ask me. It's just so, it's just, this, it gives me, I don't learn anything from the footy media. You know, and look, it's difficult for them. I understand that because you're running sports broadcasters, you're running the Herald Sun sports pages and all of that. But what do you learn from it?
1: One thing I did learn a lot was when you guys would have the talk back. That was always very entertaining when you and Kevin, as you would call him, would yeah. take the call-ins.
0: It was theatrical. It was great radio. Yeah. What made it so good? Oh, I think, you know, I think the SEN listeners are fabulous people. 95% of them are fantastic and you sort of miss them. And You get to know them, you know, like you get to... Sometimes you didn't meet them, and they'd walk up and say, "Oh, by the way, I'm I'm crackers from you know Hoppers Crossing or whatever," and, and it's sort of fun. So I think ninety five. I mean, there's some absolute. F- I mean, some of the some of the vitriol you get because you, you're sitting there, you've got a mm. computer screen next. to you, and they text are, messages they are text come through, and you yep. are getting hundreds an hour, and some of it is. And I'd wind them up too. Don't get me wrong. I <laughs> I remember. I think it must have been the Collingwood West Coast Grand Final, and KB said, uh, "Well, surely, Doc, knowing that I hate Collingwood, you know, as you know, growing up a Melbourne supporter, that you know, was just automatic." He said, "Surely, Doc, you know, if Collingwood playing a, an interstate team, you'll be barracking for West Coast Eagles in the Grand Final tomorrow." And I think I said something like, "Kevin, I wouldn't barrack for Collingwood if they were playing the Taliban," <laughs> and. The, the hate. The hate. That, you know what? It was a joke. It, it was a joke. But you saw I say don't just don't read. Don't don't read him. Don't yeah, read him. Yeah. But oh, you know, you, you do read him. And how people with thinner skins than me would deal with it and look, I got racist abuse. I mean, God I got racist, but you know, like I'm old enough and I've put up with it long enough that you know, you just think, what I'm an imbecile, you know, <laughs> like and, and take it too hard, you know. <laughs> it's like when
1: Kevin, as he'd sign off, would tip Richmond by what, hundred and twenty-nine points every time they were yeah. playing Carlton. And it would yeah. just set the blues supporters yeah. off each and every time. Yeah.
0: And he because everything he he is the greatest of everything, the greatest tipster, <laughs> he was the, he was the greatest player to play the game. You know, the greatest that's just his shtick, if you like. And <laughs> yes. It was always Richmond bias. It's like when I used to work for Steve Isaac, you know, and uh, he was, you know, that celebrity tipping panel in the Herald Sun. Yes. So Steve, my, part of my job was to put his tips in and Steve was a Hawthorne supporter. And for three years I put his tips in and every week, every one of those three years I put in that Hawthorne was, beaten by a point. <laughs> <laughs> and he never it just shows he never even bothered to look at it. He never he never knew. The <laughs> ne- yeah, everything was the best, Richmond.
1: Now, it's funny how the world works after RSN and you departed, you ended up back at RSN and You've done some wonderful things with RSN. It's always entertaining radio when you're there. How did that come about? And you're very glad that you got back on the nine two seven space. Uh, am I? <laughs> am I back on? Wow, well, you've done well, a lot uh, since. Well, I've done a bit of you and Matt Stewart and Michael yeah. Falgate. A great trifecta.
0: Yeah. No. I, like I've, maybe there's a, you know when I was talking before about the you know the the will of racing broadcasters to sort of. Um, uh, you know, try and be a little bit more entertaining is sometimes found wanting. Those guys in particular, Matt, I mean, I really like Matt, what he does. I mean, he gets it wrong a lot, Matt, but, you know, I, I think getting it wrong and having conflict and and, and creating debate and being a bit flimmed about stuff, to me, it's good radio. And, and I'm always on about, I don't care what your stakeholders want because I think RSN broadcasts, I don't want to be that critical of RSN because, you know, they're in between a rock and a hard place. But they've got to make the decision to stop broadcasting to the stakeholders and start broadcasting to the audience. And, you know, it's difficult. But Matt gets, I think, you know, I'd quite like to boost stuff with Matt, but whether it eventuates or not, who knows. But uh, Matt sort of gets it. I think Mickey Felgate gets it as well. I know you. Velgate's well, great at just pulling the strings between yeah. you two and just letting you two go. You do have responsibilities. I understand that, and, and given the fact that it's tricol, <sighs> the station, you know, it, it's a it's a yoke around their neck. To be honest, um, but you know, hopefully they'll be more flexible going forward. I think there's a bit of a will to do it, but it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to do. So I did enjoy those spring carnivals. I worked with them, and we did a couple of breakfasts together, and. Matt and I did a couple of uh, pub gigs during the spring carnival last year that were a great, a lot of fun, a lot of fun when you're not constrained by, you know, tipping and interviewing seriously and all that sort of stuff.
1: SEN track, it's going well. Would you consider doing some work on
0: SEN track? I wouldn't have thought so, no. Why? Uh, I've got no interest in
1: it. Isn't that sort of what you're preaching though? It's entertaining. It's well, I don't know. I don't know what they do, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> uh, it's good to see you're uh, invested in the product that's just filling yeah. your pockets each and every month. Now, you've done some wonderful things across the way.
0: Talk to me about the green cloth. Oh, geez. The pool hall. Uh, well, when I was at, uh, I bought a pool hall. Uh, a mate <laughs> and myself bought a snooker hall. It was run by mates of mine. Uh, who uh, were SP bookmakers, so there's a fair bit of... Funny, when we took it over and just rummaging through desks and drawers and stuff, boy, did I find a lot of sort of, you know, betting slips with some very well-known people. But uh, it was run by mates of mine and mates of mine were always SP bookies and um, we used to play snooker together and and, and bet together and go on golf trips and all that sort of stuff. And they owned this snooker hall in, in Swan Street, Richmond, which is now no longer there. Uh, and I took it over and ran that for a few years with my mate. Which How was, old were you then? I'd have been uh, mid-20s, I think, mid to late 20s. It was a tough gig. It was open at 2 o'clock and shut when the last customer left, which sometimes it was midnight, sometimes it was 4 a.m., uh, seven days a week. That was a tough grind. Uh, you know, in Swan Street, Richmond, which was a little bit different Swan Street, Richmond in those days in the 1980s than it is these days. It's been a little bit. It's a little bit more hipster and <laughs> and uh, the sort of rough and tumble place it was in the 1980s.
1: So just another interesting thing you've done along we, the way. We used to get
0: some like. Diabolically dangerous people in, in there. <laughs>
1: well, you survived to tell the story, Turfy.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, and I know I mentioned this on radio before, but there was a guy named Dennis Allen who was this famous Richmond family. That his mother, matriarch, was this woman, Kath Penningle, uh, and and they were they were dangerous people, bad people, uh, really seriously bad people, uh, and they would or well, Dennis would play in the green cloth, and I just. I was petrified of it. I was actually petrified of it. I mean, he was always completely on another planet, covered in gold jewellery, heavy gold jewellery, using drugs in the back of a snooker hall. Uh, I mean, he murdered people. Yeah, there's been TV documentaries about him and I just left – I didn't charge him. I left him alone. Uh, But – He wasn't the only one, but he was the one that was petrified of. It would have cost you a fortune to run that pub, not charging everyone. (laughs) Uh, It was just him. (laughs) Uh, But, you you know, and I had a reasonably good relationship with the Richmond police, um, you know, who was, you know, used to visit a fair bit, obviously, uh, we used to have gambling machines there. This is obviously um, remember those illegal gambling machines—the um,
1: computerized, computer blackjack, and, uh, and pokey. video
0: poker, and all that. So we had them as well as the more traditional gambling machines with these things you just shake and get the balls in a row and all of that. Uh, and you know, the guy that owned the machines, uh, he, he would ring up every now and then and say, "Look, um, about seven thirty tonight, I'd put those machines in the back room." You know, so I'd put them in the back room. Quarter to eight. the coppers had turned up to no machines there. So that was just doing business in Richmond in the 80s, you know. Once again, you're one step ahead of the game. <laughs> well, it wasn't me. It was, uh, it was him. Talk to us about driving a taxi. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, is, that's very early on. I think I dropped out of uni and, uh, you know, I, I did drive yellow cabs there for a while, Nick. <laughs> Uh, much of the abuse of my children to this day because I'm <laughs> at home, I swear to God, I've still got my yellow cab jacket. <laughs> I've got a jacket. I'm disappointed you didn't bring it in. It's got a little yellow cab insignia. I don't know what happened to the the coin thing. Remember the coin clips that it used to have? Yes. Uh, but, yeah, I, I did that and, you know, I just, I was complete, I was in my early, I might have been 19, 20, 21 or something, desperately poor, bad punter, uh, you know, would drive nights which was interesting in itself. Uh, you know, and you'd get a couple of good fares and go straight to the cab and knock it off on the trot, you know. Like, it was, yeah.
1: Well, a good icebreaker when I set up the meeting with Marco and Ox might be you wear oh, yeah, the yellow cab jacket. Yeah. Yeah, that might be a good way to break the yeah, ice. Yeah. Trivia question for you. Yeah. Who kicked the most goals in the VFL in the 1980s? Yeah, Beezer.
0: Simon Beasley. Yeah, he did, yeah. You got a good story about the Beezer too, <laughs> don't you? Well, <laughs> We've been mates for a long time, uh, Simon and uh, and his, uh, and my brother uh, and his whole family, to be honest. And, and, and at one stage, um, he's been a bookie, you know, he's been a stockbroker, he was a bookie, he lost his licence. Do, do you remember him losing his licence? I license? do, I was a client of his at the time. I was a character <laughs> uh, reference for him at the case. No wonder he the, got life. He got four and a half years, yeah. he got. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, he he was uh, he was bookmaking and he got done, I think, for uh, uh, undeclared bets, I think. I think, the, 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 I think what had happened was his clerk had sent the bets instead of to him, they'd sent it to the VRC or some of the Racing Victoria or something, or he hadn't declared them. Uh, but there was that whole thing about, you know, you know, bookies not being able to bet on footy and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, uh, he he rented an office off my brother and I, uh, we had some spare office space there, and uh, and, and he, um, he he had this little office there, and he had these, I think they were schnauzers, like really shit dogs. Anyway, you know, these yappy sort of things you just want to drop kick. Uh, and he brought them into the office every day, and he knew I didn't like it. And I, like I'd go out for lunch, and he'd send me a photograph of his schnauzer on my desk. <laughs> you know, so there was this whole byplay going on the whole time. Anyway, one day the one of his dogs cracked on the carpet, <laughs> and Simon had this wonderful old woman um, named Nola, uh, who died only I think last year, but she was very old. And when he'd come across from WA to play for the Bulldogs, she's a diehard Bulldogs supporter, <laughs> and she sort of took him under his wing a little bit, old Nola, and um, she, yeah, she was the one that sort of traipsed it through there. So I said, Simon, that's it and uh, said, either the dogs go or you go. And he refused. He said, I'm not taking, you know, the dogs come to the office every day and that's it. And I said, well, you know, you're going to have to leave. And he left. He left. Uh, And we didn't speak for about six months, I reckon, (laughs) over his bloody dogs.
1: I've heard many things ruin friendships, but yeah, dog poo, I've never heard yeah, that one before. Well, it was,
0: a, it was one of those things that sort of got out of hand, you know, like it was just, I'm i am not budging and he Doesn't wasn't. Doesn't sound but, like you, Turfey. <laughs> I'm not budging and he wasn't budging and uh, um, yeah, he left. He, he left. left. He went and got an office elsewhere. But you and Beez are a good name? No, no, I had a good chin wag with him the other day.
1: Most most of your relationships get patched up, don't they?
0: Almost all of them. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Almost all of them. Not normally
1: many of the stouches are that yeah. humorous though. Yeah. Now, your superstar horse, your
0: emerging group one, you've owned some good horses <laughs> over the years, but I think you've got a nice one at the moment. Now, I'm a very small shareholder in, in that very smart sprinter, Katsu, who, um, you know, he's been a work in progress. I think he still is a work in progress, but um, I like the cut of his jib. You know, he, he's a he's big, strong horse. He, he can overdo it a little bit. But he's got a real engine. So it's sort of exciting. You know, he's a little bit untapped and hopefully, hopefully he can keep developing mentally uh, and um, make it to a, a reasonable grade. But um, he's certainly done everything right so far. I'll never forget when he had his first start and he jumped out really well leading into his first start. It was a maiden, might have been a Geelong and he just raced so badly; just he just took control of Geordie Charles and pulled and over raced and so fierce and dropped out and ran. And I remember, I remember ringing Graham, that Graham Big, the trainer. And before I said a word, he said Monday, which meant he was gelding him Monday. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> we are on the same page there. And anyway, ever since being gelded, he's been terrific. He's um, I think he's won four from six and. Uh, He's got a lot of. Uh, I don't think we found the uh, the bottom of him yet. Best horse you ever owned? Um, look, the, the winningest horse was um, Go Rami. I think with Robbie Griffiths, he won a stack of races. Uh, but I did have a. Uh, you know, only through my friendship with David Price from Price Bloodstock. Uh, Price and I've been mates for forty years. He's obviously been based in Hong Kong for twenty five odd years, but still races a lot of horses that he, that don't get sold into Hong Kong here. And uh, he invited me into a uh, that mere ungrateful alum. Uh, the filly that she was at the time. And, and I remember her winning a race at, at Corfield in, in end of May or something and Smurdy saying, oh, I think we'll have a crack at the Queensland Oaks with her. And uh, that was exciting. So, you know, booked a ticket up there and I uh, remember doing the form and ringing that price. Said, who's this? who's this thing that won the Calandra Guineas the other day? Well, Gee, that was an impressive win. He said, yeah, yeah, we can't beat her. And we ran second to her. That was Winx. And that was the second of her. She won the Calandra Guineas and then the Queensland Oaks and then the next 20, whatever the hell. Wasn't yeah. beaten again. She won a Cox Plate, you know, like two months later, yeah. or three months later, so, you know, we're, four months later. So, you know, just happened to run. She, she was a good filly. Winks or Black Caviar? Uh, I, don't, I don't play those games. I don't play those games. The one regret I have for Winks, and one's a sprinter and one's, you know, everything else, that they never went overseas with her, you know. I, I really like I, I you know, she was owned by multis. I used to argue with, about this with KB on air, you know, and um I would love to have seen her have a crack at the Queen Anne or one of those races at Royal Ascot. And the particular year that she could have gone, I think when she was six maybe or five, it was one by thirty-three to one handicapper. Like you know, I know you can't say you know, she never raced against those sorts of horses and and I think recent Events have shown us that we're a little bit off the mark, you know. You know, really. Um, you know, that horse that came out here recently and and, and won the Wait for Age races in Sydney, it's not a Group One horse over there. But I reckon she could have competed at Group One Dubai level. Dubai Honor? Yeah, Dubai Honor. I think she could have competed at Group One level overseas, but we'll never know. They were quite happy racing her on the Eastern Seaboard. At least Black Caviar, at least she had a crack and um, she she went to Royal Ascot and uh you know, I never forget uh, watching her in the Manning ad before that race, and ringing Terry Bailey. It must have been half past one in the morning. My mate, the race call caller Terry Bailey, well, not the steward. <laughs> uh, and uh, although I quite like the, Terry, this time. I do too. Um, and saying she looks awful. You know, there was clearly just something wrong with her. Uh, so for her to win that day, and I know we had to give her a dig there at the end to uh, get her mind back on the job. But that was a great win. And uh, I, I think Moods has been – he said a million times anywhere else in the world he never would have run her. So I think they were equally great. And my great story – not story about Black Caviar is I backed a horse called Quassa Quassa. I think, <laughs> I think it was trained by Dean Lawson. I got a tip for it at Flemington one day in May in a two-year-old race and bloody Black Caviar beat it. Did so you <laughs> run second? On debut. Quasa Quassa ran second, yeah. I reckon, Yeah. That was yeah, a good no, tip. That, just, just two fantastic horses, two fantastic horses. I think that's the ultimate. Yeah, went well just ran into one better. Yeah. Just ran ran into one better. No, she she was you know, I mean she did beat Highland Real, flogged Highland Real one day, didn't didn't she? In the Cox Plate. Uh, in the Cox Plate. So, and he was a seriously good horse over there end here and you know, so you think one five group ones in Europe, you know, once um the O'Briens you know, you know, you know learn how to uh, train him and everything. So I've got no doubt she would have she might have been the best Australian horse to ever go over there. Not the best, but your favourite ever horse. Because oh, it's geez. a different question. Yeah. Uh, record time. Why? I uh, of an Improvers at Colic one day and I got a huge quaddy and paid off my house with it. Which one of your houses? <laughs> the, the first house I ever owned. <laughs> and this is fair nicking. I had a sign at the front of the house C double CQ was the name of the house It stood for colic Quaddy <laughs> <laughs> and no one knew what it had. and record timer horse called I don't even know who it was record timer who had trained it uh, but it won the improve one an and improvers uh, at uh, at Colet was the last thing of the Quaddy that allowed me to pay my house off when I was 20-something punning professionally. You've probably forgotten anniversaries, but you remember that. I do remember I do remember record time and I'd love to know who it was who trained it. But, uh, no, my favourite, like, I don't know. Um, I, for some reason, I mean, I loved Manicato, you know. Like, I loved Manicato. Um, it's just such a great story, you know. And from his two-year-old start on Debu, Gary Willets, you know, and the plunge on him and telling Alan McLean to get off the Cliff Fala because you ain't beaten this one and to win five William Reeds. Five William Reeds. Yeah, you know, and there was a the battle between Manicata and Kingston Town to be the first horse to win a million dollars. Um he got out he got beaten in a Australian Cup over two thousand metres, Manicata. He was, a he, pretty decent one. Yeah, yeah, Dulcify. <laughs> yeah. Um no, he was a fantastic horse. Um Look, I was I was a teenager, but saw Vane win at Flemington, uh, which was breathtaking. Um, Kingston Town, obviously. Um, Winks, yeah. Black caviar, yeah.
1: Northerly ruined my life. Why? Because I latched onto him as a late teenager, and he didn't get beaten when I backed him.
0: Why could have done you, why something. you say pro- you ruined your life? Well, I could have done something productive with my life and was not gone down the horse yeah. racing path. Um, you know, when you look at old footage, which I like doing, the winners before my time, but the win of Tulloch in the Caulfield Cup, seriously, do yourself a favour and have a look at that win. I mean, you know that when you see Secretariat win, you know, the uh, win that race, well, for the winning margin, 32 lengths, yeah. and then he still holds the track record or whatever, You think, well, that's just not physically possible. Tulloch's win in that Caulfield Cup as a thrill is equally as spectacular. What year was that? Oh, 59, I was... It is before my time. We'll do
1: some research. We'll get uh, that up. Uh, we'll get
0: that up with the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that was, and yeah, that was just one of those wins that's always, you know, like um, Frankel's win of the Queen Anne that mm. year. Yeah, yeah, there's there's wins in there's wins that, that just think that that is unbelievable. That that is just defies, you know, performance. That like makes that. the hairs stand up on the back of yeah, your neck yeah. when you see them like that. Yeah, and it reminds you of why you love the sport and. You know, I fear for the sport, you know, just being serious. I do fear for it, as we talked about at the start of this potty, um, that people aren't going to learn, remember or embrace what has been such a, you know, such a uh, integral part of Australian life, you know, and, and the fabric of Australian life. And, and when it was, you know, oh, man, it, it was only a kid at the time, Um but seeing Farlap win the 1930 Melbourne Cup and the story of Farlap and how, you know, his, his his thoughts on Farlap winning was that it was the depths of the Depression, 1930. So people who had nothing, people who had, you know, genuinely had nothing, whether it was a shilling or a sixpence or, or a, a pound, had it on Farlap and doubled their money. And he th- always thought that was part of, you know, I just don't see any of our horses being heroes anymore, the fact that our jockeys were household names in those times, you know, and and the stories of the cups and which dominated, you know, the media, uh, you know, it has been so sanitised and it's so mundane racing these days, you know, and that's the path they went down, saturation path and quality not really being... A primary sort of something to try and hang on to, you know, you know, and hand in hand with a media that's quite happy to go along with that. I think it's been to our detriment and to the sports detriment, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's retrievable, and that does sadden me, you know. Um, But hopefully, I'm wrong because I've been wrong before.
1: Only a couple of times, and (laughs) you really admit it. Now, final thing I want to talk about, the Melbourne Footy Club. You're a tragic D. Yeah, yeah. You won a flag a couple of years ago. It was over in
0: Perth. Do you feel it's a little bit unfulfilled because you weren't there on Grand Final Day? You know, 100% unfulfilled. Yeah, no doubt about that. Look, I I was lucky enough to have been at the 1964 Grand Final. I was a 10-year-old. It just shows how things have changed. I, I got a ticket because my old man's mate was the number one ticket holder at Richmond and somehow I got a ticket to the grand final and I left home, jumped on the train, went to the footy, went to the, walked in the ground, sat on my own and got the train home as a 10-year-old. So I don't think parents would let their 10-year-olds no, do that in this day no, and age. But that, so. that was my experience of the 1964 grand final. and I remember the ball bouncing off the pack into Neil Crompton's hands Melbourne's back pocket player, number five, and he kicked the winning goal um, in the dying seconds of the 1964 grand final. And it was a long – I mean, there was such little success. I mean, there were two grand finals, 88 and 2000, where Melbourne was annihilated. So it hadn't been any finals joy, really, a little bit in the 80s. Um, But it was really unfulfilled. I mean, it was fantastic. You know, we sat as a family, broke every law, you know, there because we had friends around to watch the grand final in the middle of COVID. Uh, and, but it was an unfulfilled, you know, grand final. It was great that they won and all of that. And We had all the, you know, the, the banners out the front of the house. But for us to, to have gone to – and I seriously have only missed a handful of Melbourne games when I you – know, if, I, if I was in Melbourne over the last 50 years, I've only missed a handful of, of, of games in Victoria. To have gone every week when Mark neild was coach, I don't mean a single about, but yeah, you know, when you go to the footy, it was grim, and you know you're going to get beaten by ten, twelve, fourteen goals. You just know it's you know you don't hope for a win, you just hope it's not going to be fifteen goals. You know you hope it's only going to be six or eight goals. To sit through all of those miserable years, and then to have a a, a final series like will never be repeated, mm. their final series that year was really disappointing. Yeah. Yeah, really disappointing. So it might be this year.
1: <laughs> Absolutely it could be. I think there are a good chances any of the days. Yeah, no, they're,
0: they're going along okay. I mean, it's a long season and as we all know, I'm not saying anything you don't know, but um, just hope that they're, they're in September. It sort of fell apart for them a little bit last year. I think injuries got them at the end and I think the fact that they, they won the Premiership uh, and it came back to Victoria and we we're still in lockdown. So there was no... I think they all kept training. So I just figured they got fatigued yep. halfway through the year uh, in, in 2022. Like the year, you know, they won their first 10 games, and but they'd been up. Mm. You know, they'd sort of been up without a spell for that long. Because I'm told the players just kept training because you're in lockdown mm. and there was, you couldn't travel, or go anywhere. So that may have been an excuse if you want to look for an excuse. Because we're always looking for excuses in whatever sport we've been <laughs> uh, we've been defeated in.
1: Justification, not an excuse. Turfy, you're an absolute living legend of Australian media. Thanks for having a chat today. Thanks, Green. Nice to be. Seven. Do we trust him?
0: Well, his username is Big Stats Guy. Say no more. Connect with a community of like-minded punters only in Labros communities. T's and C's apply and available on website. What are you really gambling with?